0: Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guests' life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. Today, to launch our second series of the Radio Times podcast, we are joined on the sofa by the remarkable, inimitable Dame Emma Thompson. Sense and Sensibility, Howard's End, Fortunes of War, Nanny McPhee, and Good Luck to Leo Grande are just a handful of Thompson's notable screen credits, to which there are many. She's an absolute powerhouse, being the only person to win an Oscar for both acting and screenwriting. In this episode, we talk about how women were treated as second-class citizens when she studied at Cambridge University, how she handles fame, stays grounded, and what she has learned about love. Well, Dame Emma Thompson, welcome to the Radio Times podcast in our lovely in-person studio. It's so nice. We're surrounded by posters, colourful posters. And a colourful Emma and Thompson. And a bright,
1: pink shirt look gorgeous thank you very much corduroy
0: trousers very nice trousers because it's nice and cozy because it's february and lovely right so the format goes we talk about your tv setup we talk about telly let's start with so you spend your time between london and scotland do you have a preference on living room setup is there a living room that you prefer out of your two locations
1: oh god it's different it's different. In London, we've got our living room in London is is our kitchen as well. So everything happens in there and there's a fireplace. So actually, in a way, they're very similar because there's a fireplace in Scotland as well. But there's a tiny, tiny kitchen off, like really tiny. Um, so it's the same thing, though. You're kind of eating in the kitchen and then sitting in front of the fire, um, you know, releasing whatever needs to be released. Ideas, wind, whatever. <laughs> Windy and ideas, Windy often.
0: ideas mm-hmm. sound wonderful. Um, what do you watch when you watch Telly? What have you enjoyed recently? Well, it's actually, it's
1: well, recently I've just finished Happy Valley, which just gave me such pleasure. I'm so brilliantly written and so beautifully performed. It's just fantastic. Um, uh, I I grew up, though, without a telly, really. So we grew up, until I was about six or seven when we had a black and white telly and my dad did Zed cars. Which used to be, she, yeah, she's staring at me, says <laughs> Like what? Z Cars? What's that? Is that come? What is it? It's like a group or something. No, it was a, te- a television police thing. Oddly enough, in fact, it was sort of Happy Valley, only you know, with less murder. Um, and Brian Blessed was in it. And my dad got pushed off a roof once. I remember being traumatized by that. But when I was growing up, we 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 watched westerns because it was westerns all the time. It, westerns took the place of what are police dramas now. Mm. It was all Westerns. So I grew up watching The Virginian, who was a bloke in a black leather waistcoat, quite sexy, who I, of course, identified with because he got all the good stuff to do. Um, and, and, and then, um, as we got older, we watched Dynasty, Dallas, and Monty Python's Flying Circus. An ideal combination, in my view.
0: What was your first ever memory when you watched TV, when you got your television for the first time? Is that singed in your, in your mind?
1: Yeah, oh, Singed, absolutely. There was something called Adam Adamant, starring, oh God, someone look it up on one of your clever phony things. And it, it was a sort of heroic bloke in a cloak in London. And and I loved it so much and we weren't allowed, but, but the think probably the thing that Singed the most is the first Doctor Who. The first ever Doctor Who. And, and I can remember my first nightmare about the Cybermen.
0: Oh, good. Well, yes. I can remember it. Still. It, it occurred on around. a
1: set of stairs. And they were coming down the stairs in those, in those white
0: mm. outfits. Well, yeah. I mean, Doctor Who is something that's terrified. I, my first, one of my first TV memories was Christopher Eccleston was the Doctor. Mm. And there was the Mummy episode. Oh. where World War II and children were saying through the letterbox, where's my mummy? And I don't think I slept for no. about two years. No,
1: no, absolutely. Unless I
0: was by my And Daleks, terrifying. Terrifying. Who controls the remote in your household?
1: Um, neither of us has any kind of relationship with the remote. And both of us spend the entire time wandering around, clapping our hands to the car and going, where's, where's the remote? Where is the remote? Where's the remote? It's always under the piano or the cat's um. got it. It's, it, n- neither of us controls the remote. I have to say we're both utterly pathetic. <laughs> we never know where it is. And then someone's always stepping on it and switching the program. And there's, I hate the remote. I really, really <laughs> would prefer to have a telly. I could go and press a button on on,
0: and do the volume. I don't mind getting up and doing that. Yes. Yeah. I don't actually have a remote. I have to go to the TV. What do you do? Is it like in your thumb or something? I inherited the TV from my flatmate's boyfriend. So I've just... So you do have to go to the I TV. I have to go and I have to turn it up and so down. So I think that's better
1: for us. Yes,
0: because we've got a, a laptop attached to the TV. The screen doesn't work. Oh, so, okay, okay, that's it, few, yeah. Few you see, ago. then it's a much more conscious decision yep. to change the
1: channel. You can't flick. This oh. whole flicky thing is just not good Terrifying. for us. It's not good for us. We're just constantly just distracted by the next thing. It could be better, it could be better, it could be better, it could be better. And often it just means that we're not focusing on anything.
0: Something. Do you have a comfort TV, something that you return to time and time again that makes you feel happy? Mm. It doesn't have to be a TV, it could be a film.
1: Well, oddly enough, Gaia, my daughter, she has comfort, Tony, and they are the Die Hard franchise, The Silence of the Lambs, which she finds oddly comforting, and so do I, because I love Tony Hopkins, like a, you know, like a sort of father. Yeah, they're very odd things. I mean, Alien and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I would probably go to something comforting of that nature.
0: I'm not sure that's comforting.
1: No, it is, though, isn't it? I mean, because it's I so... do find it comforting. And I don't know why. I've, I've seen all of them so many
0: times, they don't scare it's me. You say them backwards. A little bit like for me with Harry Potter. Yes, Bashar. Professor Trelawney. Mm. Mm. Um, let's go back to your teenage years and tell me any shows that kind of remind you of that period of your life. Well, like
1: I say, Dallas and Dynasty, because they were hilarious and we would act them out at school in Camden Town, Camden to School for Girls, um, afterwards. Um, Monty Python's Flying Circus, which actually got me through school. I wrote to Michael Palin about it, actually, when I was in my 30s, and he and the others sent me a, a bill, which uh, they said, I could pay at my leisure. So Python was sort of essential through my teenage years because school, I mean, I was very lucky at school. I had a a nice time at school and I had a best friend, so that made it fine. It made it, but school's just on some level deeply unbearable, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, for all all young people because it's so rigid and Victorian, actually. Um, So, And it's very difficult not to be able to get away from it if there's a decent day or there's weather, or you could be outside and there was no green spaces in our school, you know, it was right in the center of Camden town. So yeah, you would escape into, I would sit under the stairs and read the Monty Python Big Red Book out loud to my best mate. So it was a really essential part of my, and of course a very extraordinary bit of telly. Yeah. Really extraordinary.
0: So talk to me about, so you uh, get this scholarship to Cambridge and you go off Mm -hmm. and you study English. Was there ever an intention before going that you wanted to go into drama, that you wanted to be an actress, or was it whilst you were there?
1: no um it was an odd neither thing i didn't get a scholarship i just did the exam and went no because my parents had my mum had been left some money by an aunt in scotland which paid for university my university which of course at that time was much cheaper um so i didn't have to yeah i didn't have to pay anything brilliant so i just had to work in the holidays to get through all the but um I didn't want to be an actor. It didn't occur to me that I wanted, when I got to Cambridge, to do comedy, uh, which I did. But, but actually, when I was sixteen, I went went to the Avignon Theatre Festival um, with a chum, and we stayed, and we were doing a course in something or other in French. And I saw a production of um, Racine's Entremac. and. I saw it so many times, it was so brilliant. I also think I saw it so many times because all the actors took their clothes off in it at one point and they were all just gorgeous. So I think that had something to do with it. But I remember writing to my father, I think I was about 16, I said, I think I'm gonna have to do something in this area because I suppose having been brought up by actors who are often very humane with children, don't talk down to them, don't Mm -hmm. treat them as though they come from some other country or even that they're silly or don't have much to say for themselves. Um, actors are very encouraging, I think, yeah. towards children. They've just sort of retained some compassion for their own their own early days, perhaps. Um, so, yes, I think I, I knew that. But then when I got to Cambridge, I was you know, studying English literature. I was wanting to write. and And I'd also seen Lily Tomlin in an extraordinary... Piece written by a woman called Jane Wagner called Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, where Lily Tomlin plays lots of different characters, some of them male, actually. She was really a forerunner to, um, well, there's Bea Lily, there's Ruth Draper. There are all these incredible female comedians who, who somehow expanded the idea of the female for me, because I certainly didn't inhabit any of the romantic ideals, that just didn't work for me at all. So yeah, I was going to be a comedian until I was at least 27, which is when I first acted.
0: So I interviewed Stephen Fry for this podcast, and Mm. he told me that he met this very smart woman when he was at university, Mm. and he thought she was bonkers when she, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here because it wasn't a while ago, she was riding bicycle and she took her hat off and she had crazy red shaved hair? Or mm. just a shaved head. Shaved head. And that you would make the cars stop. And he was like, okay, this is probably the best person ever. And he also told me that you were the person that introduced him to Hugh. Yeah. And that he came in and she said, hello. And then, you know, there and and they just went they were off. Yeah. And so you were so married in seconds. Yeah, he said it was like love at first sight. Yeah, yeah, no, it, just it was. Happened. Yeah. Um, so, what was that like? You know, what was your time like? You know, as part of the footlights, but also kind of making television and and being a part of of the group mm. that was Fry and Laurie, but also the footlights and and that experience of was some real gems that came out of mm. of that generation. Mm.
1: Well, it you know, it's it's. Um it's a mishmash because um, I did, I met I met Hugh in my first term, and he was studying archaeology, I think, or something like that. Um, uh, around the corner from me, I was at Newnham, and Stephen was dead posh at Queen's and had the nicest rooms I'd ever seen, ever, <laughs> with sort of mullioned windows. And, um, you know, I was in a women's college, which, as Virginia Woolf so brilliantly describes in Arthur's Education, um, y- you know, they didn't turn the heating on until mid-November. you were always ill, always cold, always cold, because women's colleges had no money. And you really did feel like the second class citizen uh, as a woman at Cambridge. And yet, our, I mean, our teachers were just extraordinary. My favourite teacher, Jean Gooder, who's my tutor at at Cambridge, I'm still in touch with, and she's just got this incredible mind, and that was as influential to me as of course, meeting the boys, but they were my contemporaries and 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 they were you know remarkable absolutely remarkable Stephen was he's a little bit older than us, I think he's got a couple of years older, and I think he joined the footlights the following year, but I think I must have introduced him and you in our first year. And then Hugh and I were in the panto, the first panto, which was Aladdin. And I was in my mother's fishnet tights and a pair of suede boots and an old shirt with a belt. Just classic. And Hugh was playing the emperor of China. And uh, uh, yeah, I remember, have very, very clear memories of the fun of it. And a mate of mine, actually ran the footlights that year. He was still pre- he was president. So he got us all together and we did our first review. And the great thing about the reviews were that they were semi-professional in the sense that we used to do them in the theater, the arts theater. But then in the summer, we would take them um, on tour and then to Edinburgh. So we would tour at theaters like Peterborough and Stevenage and all that would go all over the shop. Um, and we were paid for that. Wow. So we earned money, a little bit of money, and then we'd go to the fringe, absolutely. And those were absolutely magical times, really magical, because we were, we all were pretty happy. And we were not, we were doing it for fun, you know, we weren't doing it to wait for people to come and see and pick us up. And it wasn't for that reason. We were doing it because it was,
0: it was just, it, it was really, really good yeah. fun. You guys did have agents, which is, you know, to, to uh, someone like me, that sounds like a miraculous thing to have before you've even left university. Yes, I, I always forget about
1: that. But it didn't kind of strike me as particularly bizarre, I suppose because I was brought up in the theatre.
0: But yeah. yeah, you're right, it's true. It's and did true. you always find it kind of after you left, so you you did theatre work and then you branched out into TV... And you know what was what was that whole world like? Because was there ever any doubt that you would make it work, or, or did it kind of all just go in your favour?
1: No, it was all again. It might look like that from uh, from back here, from here, yeah. but then I was you know intent upon developing comically. You know when I left university and we, we went to Australia and we toured Australia with both of the musical, the review. And then I went to Paris and did a sort of strange mime course from run by a clown, yeah. from Philippe Gollier's School of Clowning. Um, incredible, actually, extraordinary. And I kept. Um, I did a solo show in Edinburgh um, in eighty three. So that was two years after I left university. I was I was writing my own stuff and putting it together and doing. A special for Channel Four, which I wanted to call "sexily transmitted," but they wouldn't let me. In which I wrote a sketch for my mother and I, two Salvation Army women talking about penises. I just can't believe we got away with it. Anyway, <laughs> um, and then we did—I did my show, um, and then we did Alfresco with Ben Elton and Robbie Coltrane. God rest him. Uh, so it was—it was all very in and out. And then I did a musical for fifteen months. I did, did so many different things. Mm and I'm terribly grateful for that. Yeah. I had no ambition in that sense of kind of, oh, you know, I'm, I want to be a movie star. I, want, I, had no, I had no notion of acting in films. It didn't occur to me yeah. in the same way as my parents who worked in the theater. It didn't occur to them that they would ever do television. Yeah. It, did, it wasn't, that wasn't the sort of thing. And then when he, we ended up doing telly, the first thing, I suppose, the first thing I did as an actor was Tooty Fruity with Robbie.
0: Yeah. And I only
1: got that by accident because he's, they were saying, we need a woman who can play your play your love interest who can do a Scottish accent. And he said, well, you know, try Thompson, she's Scottish. She, she, <laughs> just ask her. She can do a Scottish accent. So that's what I did after me and my girl. Yeah. So there was no rhyme, no reason. It wasn't, No, no, what I was lucky uh, was I was
0: given jobs. Yeah. And I got to work. I worked all the time. I'm looking after our feedback pages at the moment, and they had a rerun of Fortunes of War on Uh, PC4. Yeah. Um, So we had lots of letters coming in about that, and I know that that was also kind of something that brought you into um, public consciousness, shall we say. But then after that, you know, you maybe and correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps you got global recognition after Howard's End. And I wondered, what was it like, you know, getting swept up in in this wonderful career? And, and you're obviously very passionate about storytelling and about acting and about words as well. But what does fame feel like, or when you start to get that part of the job thrust upon you? Well, uh, I, really,
1: uh, I, I really hated the... Um, too much. I got get very sort of, dist, sort of distraught, and and actually, both times I had to do the Oscars, I got ill, quite seriously ill, before and during it, because just found the pressure of it too much, the glare too much. It's not something I like um, very much. I mean, it's sort of astonishing, and you go, oh, ha, ha, and then you think, oh, God, I really want to lie down now and just get go in a dark room and just please don't ask me any questions or make me talk about myself it's horrible so I quite quickly developed a sort of allergy to all of that but it's a sort of part of the job and as for fame it it doesn't happen overnight it doesn't it's gradual and 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 I think I'm quite lucky from that point of view I think it must be awful you know if you have to deal with sort of being James Bond or being one of those where you really can't go anywhere Mm. and to lose your anonymity completely which Hugh actually did when he was doing House for a bit and I think he found that very hard I can imagine that he did and it's it's um there really ought to be a handbook actually Mm. because it's not very pleasant for you or for your people around you Or if it is, it's not very pleasant for very long. If that's what you want, if you want to be recognised, that's not why I do it. But if you want to be recognised, then then I suppose you can deal with it. Deal with it, or you don't find it as intrusive. Um, But I think it's a highly toxic condition, Mm -hmm. and I think that unless you're very grounded and you. You live. I mean, I've I've lived in a con- strange continuum in the sense that I've lived on the same street in London all my life. So I've lived in the same two places in London and Scotland for sixty three years. Sixty three years. Mm-hmm. So you know, once you if you're surrounded by the same buildings and the same people, going all right, yeah. you can't really get away with swanning about yeah. in a Louis Vuitton like
0: <laughs> taxi, or you know, you just can't. So that's a help. But I guess also the fame has bought you a platform for a voice which you use very well for activism. And one of the first pieces I wrote was I profiled Emily Maitlis, who had spoken to you after the Weinstein allegations had come to light. And, you know, you, you speak not only positively about body image and female representation and f- female injustice or the misuse of power or abuse of power. Does that ever get difficult or do you ever feel challenged by the need or by your wanting to find your voice i've always used my voice i used it before i was famous
1: that's what but get that's what is i think largely misunderstood that i've always spoken about these things since i was 19 i've been speaking about them in private or in groups or you know if i was doing sketches the first sketches i wrote were about you know, domestic violence and body image. So, you know, it wasn't fame that made me use my voice. I had always felt very, very strongly about everything to do with women's rights particularly and their position in society, which I thought was uh, not properly recognised. I thought that, that, in fact, attitudes back then were awful and that the toxic environments for women were so you could feel it. It was just really un, unpleasant. So this is something that's always been with me. So I just, if, and as I suppose the voice gets amplified by fame, but it's still the same voice. Yeah. And that's what saves you. You know, if you suddenly get famous and go, oh, now I'm going to start talking about something that I haven't been talking about for the last 20 years, that's different. But I haven't changed my tune since I was 20 years old. Yeah. I might have got wiser. Well, let's hope so. But I actually, my views, the way in which I feel about the world, is very similar. Yeah. So fame's neither here nor there. And I suppose, you know, you can like get landed on by the press because a right-wing press doesn't want... I don't want women to say anything actually really, but particularly left-wing views or, 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 mm. or views that are, um, well, I mean, look at, look at the way in which people are treated who speak about even about something as, as urgent as climate change. You know, our right-wing press will do anything really to sort of shut people up. And we also are living in a, um, a country where our right to protest is being challenged at every level and it's getting very serious now. There's a great book by Matt Foote, actually, and someone else um, who will forgive me if I can't quite remember their names or anything about the way policing has changed in this country. You know, when I was on the Extinction Rebellion pink boat, I went down to read a poem to the the protesters and, um, and the police came down. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. I thought, what on earth's going on? We used to do, we were protesting in London. We used to protest. I was always on the protest, CND marches, you know, the Reagan Out Valley. I remember that was about 160,000 people in Trafalgar Square and I was doing, trying to do stand-up comedy, which is another thing I did. I died a horrible death. It was ghastly. But, you know, even then, there was, yeah, there was some police around, but they knew that this was a peaceful demonstration. The number of police that turned up at the XR rebellion was insane. There were things that the police needed to be doing on that day that they weren't allowed to be doing because we had a government said, we're not allowing this, you know, a quiet, peaceful demonstration in Oxford streets, preventing people from what? getting into H&M to pick up an I mean please. Yeah. It that that I think is a very worrying development in this country.
0: Let's talk about the film. Um and let's talk about your character cat. Yes. Um she has very good intentions. I think she's a very recognizable character. <laughs> she, she makes so you is. giggle because it's so silly what comes out of her mouth and that yeah. yet you see it you see it amongst us. She's her. so
1: inappropriate. What
0: do you think she reflects or mirrors in our society? Um
1: she's sort of supremely british actually isn't she in that sense of just and i'm sure actually it's not just british it's just people who haven't necessarily i don't know what is it she's she's not a big reader she's not she likes people she's absolutely fascinated by this cultural difference of the family next door but what she loves about them is that they're they're friendly to her and she's lonely. Yeah. She's divorced. She's on her own. And and she's so utterly thrilled to be included. So she reflects as much the need for the lonely to be included and the, the sort of warmth of this family, that she can feel that and that she can return it is... Uh, I don't know, it reminds me of an awful lot of people that I know, but also her kind of, her blind spots, how she's got absolute cloth ears. She's always saying, she's the sort of person who will say, you know, the thing. The nice thing about a burqa is it's just wonderfully forgiving, isn't it? Yeah. And you just go, oh, but I mean, I find nice, I can say something at some point, and, and my daughter will just say to me, mum, mum, yeah. you actually can't say that. And I, I say, why? Why? And she'll then explain it to me and I'll go, oh, okay, okay. So I think sense. actually she's she's now, she, she to me represents all of us as we get older and we just don't know what to do or say because we're always saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, therefore, that's sort of most people yes. of my generation. So even if they might be a little bit more with it, if it came to sort of, the culture of Pakistan, for instance, they're still going to be getting getting it wrong on gender issues, trans, et They're just going to be getting it wrong. Yes. Absolutely, no question. They're going to get it wrong. So that's what I, I like about Kath is that she gets it wrong, but she gets up again, and goes, okay, or she ignores it, and she just carries on trying to be kind.
0: Yeah. Just to finish up in one sentence, what do you think this film has taught you about the importance of love, companionship, and marriage? It's incredibly philosophically calming and helpful
1: and uplifting to remember that romantic love is a myth and actually quite dangerous and that we really do have to take it with a massive pinch of salt, an entire bottle of Kiko and soya, if you ask me. I've always thought that. The The romance myth is a extremely dangerous. It's, it's led us into down so many stupid garden paths and we can't think sensibly about love anymore. To think sensibly about love and the way in which it can grow is, is, is essential if we're going to live long lives because long-term relationships are hugely difficult and complicated. And if anyone thinks that happy ever after has a place in our real lives, forget it. And that's, that's what this film's about
0: really. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If there's a guest you'd love to hear us interview, a programme you've heard us talk about that has marked your life, or any other thoughts you'd like to share, please do write in to podcast at radiotimes.com. Please also remember to rate, review and subscribe.